A note before we begin. This episode features discussions of child abuse and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. We're all guilty of confirmation bias sometimes. We find facts or cherry-pick details to support what we already believe or what we want to believe. It's only natural. No one can be truly objective because our individual worldviews are shaped by our unique past, our experiences, dreams, memories, and assumptions. Today, I want you to try to set aside as much of that as possible in the hopes that you don't get led astray by the evidence. Because even the facts of this case will have you questioning what's real and what's not. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm introducing you to a girl who disappeared after a fight with her stepfather in 1981. Her siblings believe she'd been murdered until years later, someone walked back into their lives and turned their world on its head. This is the story of Mary Louise Day. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's the 1970s. Charlotte Day and her husband Charles struggle to support their three children, Mary, Sherry, and Kathy. As a result, the three sisters spend their childhoods in and out of foster care. Charlotte eventually divorces Charles, remarries, and tries to get the girls back. But the youngest, Sherry, has already been formally adopted by another family, so she's only able to regain custody of two, Mary and Kathy. Sherry visits her birth mother and sisters from time to time, but I can't imagine the separation ever gets easier. Mary and Kathy's lives certainly don't. No one ever enrolls the girls in school, so they miss out on an education, socializing with other kids their own age, and adult guidance beyond their mother and stepfather. Which becomes a problem when Charlotte's new husband, William Houle, starts physically abusing Mary. Thankfully, someone finds out. I don't know who or when, but William's actions eventually land Mary in Child Protective Services while the family is living in Hawaii. William's a soldier in the US Army. Charlotte and the girls relocate anytime his station assignment changes. Around the same time Mary enters CPS, the girl's birth father, Charles, passes away. As far as I can tell, whether they would have wanted to or not, Mary and her sisters never get the chance to say goodbye. But the small inheritance Charles leaves behind for his daughters offers them hope. They decide to use it to fund their secret emergency escape plan in case they ever need to run away on short notice. They even have a code name for their scheme, Mohawk. In the spring of 1981, while Mary is still in Child Protective Services in Hawaii, Charlotte, William, and Kathy move away. William's job takes them to Seaside, California to live on a military base called Fort Ord. 
The area is beautiful, idyllic, just a stone's throw to the beach. Mary, who's 13 years old by now, gets released from CPS a few months later and flies back to California to live with her sister, mother, and stepfather. But within a few weeks, William's abuse starts up again. One evening, he and Mary get into a fight. It's loud and turns violent, but it's nothing out of the ordinary. The only reason it stands out in anyone's memory is because sometime after the fight, Mary disappears. Charlotte and William don't file a missing persons report. And because they're new to town and mostly keep to themselves, no one outside their immediate family knows Mary's gone. Kathy asked her mom and stepfather what happened to her sister, but every time she gets the same answer, Mary ran away. Meanwhile, Charlotte and William basically erase all evidence that their oldest child existed. They tear up their photos of Mary, throw away her clothes, and they make a strange comment to the only daughter they have left. They tell Kathy she's no longer allowed, under any circumstances, to play in a certain corner of their yard. And although she's only 11 years old, Kathy hears this and knows in her bones something's not right. Now, based on the information available to me, the timeline here is a little unclear. I'm not sure how much time passes. It could be years. But at some point, Mary's youngest sister, Sherry, visits Charlotte, William, and Kathy. She arrives having no idea that her older sister is missing. So you can imagine her surprise when she gets there and Mary's MIA. Like Kathy, Sherry's told her sister ran away. She doesn't exactly believe it, but too afraid of what might happen if she questions any further, she keeps her mouth shut. At least until she's alone with Kathy. One evening while lying in bed, Sherry works up the courage to ask her sister what happened to Mary, but Kathy doesn't open up. She seems too terrified to speak. She reportedly tells her sister she's not allowed to talk about Mary, ever. And that's it. As far as I can tell, the conversation ends here. Over the years, Sherry becomes more convinced that something terrible happened to Mary. According to her, she once overheard her mother say something along the lines of, there are a lot of places to hide a body in California. The older Sherry gets, the less she understands why her parents didn't try to find her sister. What kind of parents wouldn't go looking for their 13-year-old daughter? By the time Sherry's an adult, that question has caused her many sleepless nights. And at some point, she decides to go to the seaside police and report her sister missing. Even though it's been more than 20 years, authorities take the report seriously. In their investigation, they learn that in the time since Mary disappeared, no one's used her social security number. In fact, detectives can't find a paper trail of any kind. No employment documents, welfare benefits, arrest records, paychecks. This along with Sherry's statements about Mary's troubled childhood, and I imagine the records from Child Protective Services, lead seaside officials to suspect that Mary didn't run away in 1981. But before jumping to any conclusions, Detective Joe Bertina tracks down Mary's other sister, Kathy, for questioning. In addition to sitting for an interview, Kathy escorts the detective back to the house where they lived when Mary disappeared. She does her best to paint a picture of what happened that day. This is what she remembers. That evening, back in 1981, Charlotte and William went out for dinner, leaving Mary and Kathy home alone. 
While they were out, William's dog fell sick. By the time they came home, it was apparently dying on the kitchen floor. William loved the dog, arguably more than the girls. So when he walked in the door, he flew into a rage. He directed most of his anger at Mary, accusing her of intentionally poisoning the dog. He backed his stepdaughter into a corner and began beating her. Kathy watched on, helpless, as her older sister's cries echoed through the house. If Charlotte was in the room at the time, she didn't intervene. While tension settled, Kathy saw blood running from Mary's mouth. She doesn't remember much else after that, but she never saw or heard from her sister again. The story sends a chill up Detective Bertina's spine. Even before Kathy shows him the corner of the yard, her parents told her not to play in after that night. The detective leaves the property. He suspects the worst. He returns later with a team of police officers and cadaver dogs. And it doesn't take long for the dogs to pick up a scent in the backyard, right in that corner. In 2003, Detective John Bertina finds himself working a 20-year-old missing persons case. He believes Mary Day may have been murdered by her stepfather back in 1981 and buried below a tree in their yard. Cadaver dogs have picked up a scent of what detectives assume are human remains, but when officials dig up the soil, they don't find Mary, just a little girl's tennis shoe. This leads Bertina and his team to believe that Mary may have been killed, exhumed, and her body moved after the family relocated to another home. So detectives tried tracking down the two people suspected of having a hand in her murder, Mary's parents, William and Charlotte. Turns out the couple is still alive and together, living in Kansas. Charlotte agrees to sit for an interview, but when the time comes, she rejects any notion of foul play. She sticks to her same old story. Mary ran away. Charlotte claims it wasn't the first time either. According to her, she couldn't keep track of the number of times her daughter tried to escape before she went missing in 1981. Officials record the interview between Charlotte and Detective Bertina. You can find videos of it online. And I have to say, it's unsettling. When she talks about how Mary would frequently run away, she calls her a quote, night crawler, because apparently the second someone would catch Mary, she'd slip through their fingers again and get away. Police ask why Charlotte didn't report Mary missing, but she doesn't give them an answer. Instead, she waxes poetic for a bit, talking about how life is full of regrets. There are plenty of things she could have or should have done in this life, but didn't. But she changes her tune later, claiming William did file a report back in 1981. He just filed one with the Salinas Police Department, a town nearby. But it doesn't take long for detectives to debunk the claim there's no record of Mary Day's disappearance at any station in the state. By the end of the interview, Charlotte doesn't own up to much, but she does admit that she no longer speaks to her other daughter, Kathy. She believes Kathy has been, quote, brainwashing members of the family, presumably by discussing what she thinks happened to Mary. Charlotte begins discussing what she thinks happened to her daughter. In her mind, Mary just slipped through the cracks. She leans back in her chair, takes a half breath and tells officials, quote, if she's dead, she's dead. When the interview's over, investigators assess how it went. Charlotte's body language suggested a certain amount of caginess. She kept fidgeting in her seat, slinking down in her chair, 
She seemed nervous, and they believe she may have been withholding information. So they bring in William next, and he gives a very different account of what happened that night. First, William claims that after he and Charlotte came home from dinner, Mary was already gone. He looked everywhere to try and find her, but couldn't. He called the police right away to report her missing. But his story changes when detectives ask him about his dog. Suddenly, he says he does remember seeing Mary that night. After he got home from dinner, they did have a fight. He even admits that he hit her. He claims she tried to run out of the house a few times and he kept grabbing her, pulling her back in and assaulting her all over again. He flat out denies killing Mary, but he tells detectives he did have a demon inside of him at the time and not just figuratively. Charlotte apparently told William that she saw the devil in his eyes that night. And this pretty much becomes William's defense. He doesn't remember what happened next. He blacked out, he was possessed. When Detective Bertina asks if this demon could have killed Mary, William hesitates, but says, it's possible. As strange as the statement is, it's not a confession. No matter how guilty Bertina thinks William is, he has no choice but to let him go. And for the next several months, he tries to build a case against Mary's stepfather. But in November, 2003, officials receive a call from an Arizona police station that turns the case on its head. One of their officers has a story they need to hear. They recently pulled over a pickup truck in the Phoenix area. The truck had stolen plates. And when the officer ran the IDs of the people inside, they found that one of the two passengers had a name of a girl who disappeared in California a while back, Mary Louise Day. Based on photos, the woman shares a lot of the girl's physical features as well. When the Seaside police chief hears this story, he nearly falls out of his chair. The timing feels too coincidental to be real. Mary Day has been missing for 20 years. Detectives have only been investigating her case for like eight months. And now she just shows up out of the blue? Joe Bertina hops on the next plane to Phoenix to investigate. There he meets this woman, this Mary Louise Day, who by this point claims to be the Mary Day, the girl who disappeared all those years ago. So Detective Bartina starts asking questions about Mary's childhood to see if she's telling the truth. And he's not convinced by her answers. For starters, her ID was only issued a few weeks ago. And when discussing the night Mary Day went missing, the woman says she doesn't remember anything about a sick dog, the supposed catalyst for the fight that caused Mary to run away in the first place. But there may be an explanation for that, for why the details are a little fuzzy. According to this woman, her stepfather, William, repeatedly slammed her head into a bathtub until she bled and passed out, which at the very least sounds similar to Kathy's recollection of that night, when she saw Mary with a pool of blood in her mouth. But no matter what she says, Detective Bartina has a hard time believing this woman, in part because for so long, he's been under the impression he's investigating a murder. But to do their due diligence, officials run a DNA test. And when the results come back, they confirm the unimaginable. The woman is Charlotte Hull's daughter. Meaning she's almost certainly Mary Day, the girl who vanished from her home in Seaside, California back in 1981. It's hard to imagine what runs through Sherry and Kathy's heads when they hear the news. It's the equivalent of having a loved one come back from the grave. Sherry invites Mary to live with her at her home in North Carolina. Kathy begins rekindling her relationship with her long lost sister. 
but after a few weeks, a sliver of doubt starts to creep in. There's something about Mary that just doesn't sit right with either one of them. So much has changed about their sister. Mary now speaks with a Southern drawl, something that experts say would have taken her nearly a decade to develop. But according to her own account, she only spent a few years in the South. Mary also apparently doesn't remember anything about the inheritance their birth father left them when he died or their secret emergency escape plan, the one they codenamed Mohawk and talked about all the time as kids. Even more strange, Sherry notices that Mary starts receiving mail at the house that's addressed to another name entirely, someone called Monica Devereaux. So the sisters start to wonder if against all the odds, this woman saying she's their sister, who passed a DNA test theoretically proving she's their sister, might be an imposter. And it doesn't help that new evidence keeps popping up to sow even more doubt. In 2008, Seaside police are called to investigate a crime at the Fort Ord Army base, something unrelated to Mary's case. At least that's what officials assume at first. But when they bring a team of cadaver dogs in, the dogs apparently identify a yard where human remains were once buried. When police check the records for who previously owned that house, one name sticks out like a sore thumb, William Houle. Now, this isn't the same yard where investigators found that sneaker in 2003. It's a different yard, different house. Charlotte and William moved there after Mary disappeared. So now no one knows what to think. Was Mary murdered by her stepfather, then buried, exhumed, and reburied? Could the DNA test have been wrong? Or did she actually run away and she's alive and well? The evidence seems to contradict itself. Officials are so confused that they pull a detective out of retirement to work the case. His name's Mark Clark, and he puts together a theory based entirely on circumstantial evidence and speculation. He believes the DNA test was accurate, that the woman claiming to be Mary is Charlotte's daughter, but he suspects she's not Mary Day. She's another child, one Charlotte may have had out of wedlock. He thinks that after detectives reached out to Charlotte and William for interviews, the couple got scared. So they reached out to Charlotte's estranged daughter and gave her Mary's birth certificate and social security information. That would explain why police suddenly found Mary after all these years. It was Mary's half-sister posing as Mary to protect Charlotte and William. As for a motive, Clark believes that Charlotte told this estranged daughter that if she cooperated, she'd be able to dip into the real Mary's inheritance. It's confusing and outlandish, I know. But Detective Clark even revisits all the evidence from the 2003 investigation to confirm his theory. When he brings forensic anthropologists back to the home that Mary disappeared from, they agree. The soil samples in the backyard near the tree show evidence of human decomposition. And when Detective Clark shows Kathy that tennis shoe investigators found in the soil all those years back, Kathy says it looks identical to the ones Mary used to wear. So Kathy walks away believing Mary is in fact dead. So does Sherry, and so do detectives. The only problem is they're wrong. It's 2017 a decade after Detective Mark Clark developed his theory suggesting that Mary Day was killed. And the woman now claiming to be Mary is secretly her half-sister, who basically no one knew existed. 
Many officials still believe that explanation is likely. As a result, Mary's case hasn't been shut. It's considered an unsolved murder investigation. But not everyone stands so firmly behind Clark's theory. That year, the Seaside Chief of Police, Judy Velaz, takes over Mary's case. She suspects it might be a case of Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is correct. The DNA test was accurate. Charlotte and William told the truth about their daughter running away. And the woman claiming to be Mary is Mary. There's one primary reason people have a hard time believing this is Mary. On two separate occasions, cadaver dogs have indicated the possible presence of human remains on two different properties owned by the man suspected of killing her, Mary's stepfather, William Houle. Forensic experts have confirmed that the soil in one of the yards showed evidence of human decomposition. However, Chief Lalaz sees a few problems with another critical piece of evidence investigators dug up in that same soil back in 2003, the sneaker. The one Kathy says was identical to the one Mary used to wear. According to Velaz, it's extremely small, like fits in the palm of a human hand small. Remember, Mary was 13 when she disappeared. I couldn't find any record of how tall she was, but Chief Velaz claims she, quote, wasn't short, which is why she believes the sneaker is too small to have been Mary's, at least at the time she went missing. Not to mention, lab techs run additional DNA tests on the woman claiming to be Mary, and they confirm Charlotte is her mother and Charles Day is her biological father. There's no way she's some secret child no one but Charlotte knew about. And with that, Detective Clark's theory falls apart. But to really put the case to bed, Chief Velaz wants to speak with Mary one last time. By now, Mary's moved out of Sherry's house. She's 49 years old, lives alone in Missouri, and is battling late-stage cancer. Velaz and Mary are able to have a 90-minute conversation. It's about all the strength Mary can muster. In that time, Mary expresses concern that her photo is still listed in missing person databases. She's not missing, and she doesn't want to take resources away from those who are. She also opens up about her life. This might be the first time she really felt comfortable telling her story, or the first time someone actually listened. Either way, this is what Mary says. After she ran away in 1981, she lived on the streets, traveling from city to city. She adopted the pseudonym Monica Devereaux because she didn't want anyone to find her and bring her back to her parents. She did everything in her power to disassociate from her old identity, including self-medicating. Mary struggled with an alcohol use disorder for years. She didn't wanna look back at her past, her trauma. She ran from it until she couldn't anymore. The reason she applied for that ID in 2003 using her legal name was because she had no other choice. She needed her gallbladder removed. She couldn't get state aid without it. It wasn't easy to track down her birth certificate after all those years, but a nonprofit helped her work her way through the red tape. Then, of course, detectives found her, which led to reunions, confusion, accusations, rejections. And now she's here, dying still having to convince the people who share her blood that she's alive. Nine days later, she loses her battle with cancer. Because many still question her identity, including her sisters, no one holds a funeral. 
But after she passes, Chief Velaz continues to try to write a new ending. She tracks down a woman who Mary claimed housed her for a bit in Salinas, a woman named Maury Kimmel. Velaz learns Maury's real, and she even corroborates everything Mary said. Maury raised Mary for about a year alongside her two daughters when Mary was 15. Then one night, Mary snuck out and never came back. Maury cries while recalling the memory. That day broke Maury's heart. According to her, she planned to give Mary a forever home. Later, Maury's family finds a photo of Mary while she was living with them. Mary's smiling, hand on her hip, in the very center of the frame. She looks happy, radiant even. They give it to investigators. When facial recognition experts examine the picture and given the timeline and assumed age progression, they determine there's a 99% probability it really is Mary Day. It's the smoking gun everyone's been looking for. Though it's too late to tell her, Sherry finally believes her sister. 36 years after Mary Day ran away from an abusive household, Chief Velaz closes her case for good. Though she's not alive to see it, Mary finally gets the validation that's escaped her for so long. In an interview with CBS News, Chief Velaz said, quote, "'We have to be very careful, all of us in law enforcement, not to make our story fit our ideas or what we believed happened.'" And she's right. When we try to force facts into prepackaged theories, it can send us down long roads without answers. And that applies to more than just members of law enforcement. Of course, it's always easy to make comments in hindsight when you're not trying to see the forest from the trees. Like I said at the beginning, the choices we make are always going to be shaped by our experience. For Sherry and Kathy, that means being born into a household where not trusting people was an act of self-preservation. It means spending two decades grieving a sister you believe was murdered and is never coming back. For detectives, that means hearing that a girl was probably murdered, having the suspected killer nearly confess to the murder, and finding compelling evidence to back it up. Which is all to say, it can be easy to want to mourn the happy ending that almost but didn't happen, to cast blame on all those who didn't believe Mary, but in getting caught up in the twists and turns of this case, I don't wanna lose sight of the reason that any of it happened in the first place. A caretaker abusing a child. The trajectory of Mary's life is one in a million, but her beginning isn't. According to the Child Crime and Safety Prevention Center, one out of every seven kids between the ages of 10 and 18 run away to escape an abusive home or because they think they're better off without their family. Runaways account for nine out of 10 missing children cases. Thankfully, it's estimated that 99.8% of those children are found alive. And I can only hope they're returned to an environment where they feel safe. Unhoused youth are one of the most vulnerable populations in the world, susceptible to trafficking, substance use disorder, disease. Many don't have or see any other choice, even those who technically have families. November is National Runaway Prevention Month, designed to raise awareness around the staggering number of youth that leave home each year. 
Their National Runaway Safe Line at 1-800-RUNAWAY offers parenting tips and ways to effectively communicate with children at risk of leaving home. They offer mediated conference calls between parent or guardian and child. In addition, they provide a service called Home Free, offering safe transfer to children aged 12 to 20. They can also help arrange an alternate living arrangement for a child in danger at their own home. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Out of the many resources we used for this episode, we found CBS's 48 Hours on What Happened to Mary Day helpful to our research. For more information on National Runaway Prevention Month, please visit 1-800-NATIONALRUNAWAY.ORG or call the National Runaway Safe Line at 1-800-RUNAWAY. That's 1-800-786-2929. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Gottlieb, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, and sound designed by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 